Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We are in what we're calling Session 16, Part B, in our look at the book of Revelation. But again, we're in the Old Testament for this session, looking at the preview or the um, prologue to the book of Revelation. Just as Genesis chapter 1 gives you only a snippet of the creation event and then Genesis chapter 2 tells you more detail about the creation of us, of humanity, uh, Daniel's 70 weeks is a preview of what is the day of the Lord described more fully in detail in the book of Revelation. And again, there are several uh, similarities that we talked about previously between Daniel the prophet, the beloved prophet, and John the beloved apostle. They were both considered mystics. They were both pronounced as such by God. And they both are the heaviest writers of apocalyptic literature in their prospective testaments. But before we go into any more of that, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do approach your word uh, with humility and devotion and also reverence for the construction, for the, the thoughtfulness, for the intricacy of your word. Lord, we ask that you would unstop our ears and open our eyes, that your spirit would speak fully to us just as we read the words of this book of books. Lord, that you would open our insight that you would give us clarity of thought as well as clarity of purpose, that this would not be just a matter of trivia, but would be for us a hope as well as a fervor and a springboard to wanting, to being compassionate, to being impassioned about your gospel and wanting to see others saved from what is to come. So join us now, please. Open our hearts, hands, and minds to your word as we claim the promise given to this book. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. And again, if you're joining us from home, the notes are available online at highlandbaptistchurch.org. And if you wouldn't care, and for those of us here in the congregation too, even if you're here in the congregation, uh, like and share the video that we are doing right now. It's a very simple way to help us as Highland Baptist spread the Word of God and get it into the hearts and the hands of more people. So please, uh, if, it, if it comes across in your feed, like it, share it, uh, just say hi in the comments section or if you have anything that comes to you as a question, and I know there will be some, please use that comment section. All of that goes to helping us in our mission to make Christ known. So let's continue in right now. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word Go ahead and turn to math, uh, excuse me, to Daniel chapter 9. But while you're looking that up, I'll explain a couple of things. First, from the words of Christ himself. The reason that we're digging into Daniel while we're studying the book of Revelation actually comes to us from the voice of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 tells us, that the church will be called to minister through all kinds of trials, tribulations, hardships, 
and so forth, but we will endure it. However, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet who? Daniel, standing in the holy place, that is the key to end times prophecy. He hearkens back to the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And as we're about to see in just a little bit, when Jesus is telling his disciples that in the Olivet Discourse, that four-person basically briefing that he, private lesson that he was giving them, uh, to them it's ancient history, it's already happened. But Jesus is effectively saying, no, this is a prophetic echo. This is Jesus telling them about the prophecy echoing into the future in a very profound way. When you see the abomination of desolation that was foretold in the likeness of what was immediate to Daniel, then scatter from Jerusalem, head to the hills. Don't even, if you're on top of your, your, uh, your roof at the time, taking in the evening breeze, don't bother to go down and get your coat. Just run to the mountains because that's when God will begin to pour down His judgment. And we'll see that in just a second. So the prophetic visions that Daniel in the book uh, of, that bears his name mentioned, the first half of his book is again his biography, his history. The second half of his book written to us uh, are his visions. And they're not necessarily cataloged in alphabetical order. We'll talk about that more when eventually we get into the journey series into the book of Daniel itself. But we're focusing on chapter 9. This is what the angel tells the prophet was the purpose behind the 70 weeks. Now remember, they're not 70 weeks in a row, contiguous weeks. There is a 69-week period, then a span of an interval, uh, a uh, intermission, if you will, that we call the church age. And then the end times, the day of the Lord, is week 70 that we're about to talk about. But when the vision is given, the purpose behind this whole period is to end the rebellion, to stop or to put an end to sin, to wipe away iniquity, meaning to bring, uh, basically to wipe, to wipe the debt of sin away, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint or to dedicate the most holy place. None of this has been accomplished thus far in redemptive history except for the work of redemption on Calvary, the one that's underlined right now, to wipe away iniquity. Basically, to cancel your debt. So we're in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, starting with verse 21, reading through verse 27. Focusing most of our attention on verses 26 and 27. The prophet writes, while I was praying, and again, this is, this is when he was reading through Jeremiah, discovering that the 70 years of exile was almost accomplished, and he goes before God on his hands and his face to ask for forgiveness, to, to hearken the people back to the promised land and to have mercy. But he writes to us that while he was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme wariness about the time of the evening sacrifices, the evening offering or oblation, depending upon what version you're using, more literally sacrifices. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, 
An answer went out. In other words, God sent me out to give you this vision as you were starting the Heavenly Father or God. When, when, you, when you started praying, your answer went out. Because why? God knows what you're going to ask before you ask it. But anyway, at the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to get it, to give it. For you are treasured by God, so consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed, ordered, ordained by God, in other words, about your people, who are His people, the kingdom of Israel, the Jews. So this is a holy ordinance by God specific to the people Israel and your holy city, Jerusalem. To bring the rebellion to an end, we already mentioned that, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, to put an end to vision and prophecy because it will conclude at this point. And to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, the Christ, anointed one there literally translates into Messiah. Mashiach Nagid, Christ the King. The ruler will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 weeks, in other words, between the time that Jerusalem is decreed to be built and the coming of Christ, the declaration of Christ the King. It will be re rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in very difficult times. After these 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. Okay, this is the start of the verses we need to pay attention to. I'll get into a word study with you in just a second about the original Hebrew for cut off, karach, and uh, what it means by flood as well. After these 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler Notice it doesn't say the coming ruler. It says the people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuaries. The end will come with a flood, which is a curious phrase, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And until the end, there will be war and desolations are decreed. Again, ordained by God. Karat is the word used in Hebrew uh, which is translated here as cut off. This is what it is defined as through the uh, outline of biblical usage. To cut, to cut off, to cut down. Basically to dismember. It's used in that way with one exception, and I have it underlined for you, to cut a covenant. Now what on earth does that mean? When Abraham was putting together the covenantal walk that he and God were going to go on that would establish him as the forerunner of Israel, the kingdom whose descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore. He participated in a, a Near Eastern rite of covenant whereby you made multiple sacrifices and you arranged them in a figure eight. Basically to say as you're walking with your partner, the lesser Lord and the greater Lord, may I be as these animals if this covenant is not fulfilled. So part of the sacrifice not only means killing the animal but splitting them in half so that you walk between those halves. In that one instance, what happened? God puts Abraham to sleep, and God himself takes the burden of the covenant upon his own shoulders, and through a pillar of fire walks between that figure eight, again, assuming the full weight of the covenant restrictions upon himself, meaning that Abraham is only the beneficiary of it. This is how God works. 
All the way from Genesis to Revelation, God remains consistent in his own nature. So to, to cut a covenant means that a sacrifice is given so that a covenant may be established. What that word effectively means for us is the Mashiach, the Messiah, the King, will be sacrificed so that a new order between people and God may be established. Does this sound familiar? Which at the time of its writing must have taken uh, the priest aback. The Messiah will die. The Messiah will be killed. The Messiah will be sacrificed. Let's go on. The word for flood. Steep. Strong's definitions, either literally or figuratively, a deluge, a flood, or a, a situation which is outrageous or overflowing. In Brown Driver Briggs's lexicon, it talks of being figurative of a calamity. Translation, when he says it will end with the Messiah being cut off and with a flood, he's saying that the Messiah will be sacrificed and then a great disaster or a great calamity will befall the people. Many commentators spe speculate that the flood they were talking about is the Roman diaspora. The removal of the people of God away from the city of God. Now we're talking about here what is effectively the dawn of the church age. After the Messiah is sacrificed, the people of, quote unquote, the coming ruler will destroy the temple. A calamity will ensue that scatters the people from the city of Israel. Multiple conflicts will arise over and about Jerusalem. To this day, they have yet to end. And in multiple instances, the land will come into and be relieved from desolation. Sounds pretty familiar to the news, much less to prophecy and to history. From the words of Christ himself in Luke 19, when Jesus is entering the city in his triumphal entry, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. What a lot of commentators have taken this to mean is that even though they were given this prophecy, only few of the immediate and a much greater percentage of the, of the nation of Israel to this day have been made blind to the reality that their Messiah has come. Think about it for a second. Now, according to Daniel's four, uh, 70 weeks, the Messiah had to present himself uh, to Jerusalem as Messiah the King. He had to be riding a donkey. He had to take, this had to take place before 70 A.D. in Vespasian and when Titus, his son, would destroy Jerusalem, the city, and destroy the temple. Uh, he had to come at a time that would bring calamity and would bring uh, the desolation of Jerusalem itself, much less the, the nation of Israel. Who else does that describe? I mean, if you're looking for a candidate, we've got a doozy. But in a great way, spiritually speaking, 
There are many that take this to mean that scales have been placed over the eyes of Israel until one day. Verse 25 of Romans chapter 11, I want you to mark this down. Um, Because as I said in the last session, a lot of people think that the church has somehow circumvented Israel or replaced Israel in the eyes of God. This is not the case. In fact, that that type of replacement theology has been used in many instances to promote anti-Semitism and was actually a very core factor in the Germany in the 1930s and 40s. I'll just put it that way. Some of the most sorrowful times and shameful times in our history. Paul, apostle of Christ, in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, goes out of his way to say no. The church is different from Israel. The church does not replace Israel. They are two completely separate bodies. One, the body of Christ. The other, the kingdom of God. They have different destinies. They have different birthdays. They have different orders. One came into existence because of a covenant, and once the covenant was fulfilled, the other was brought into existence from the giving of the Holy Spirit on. He writes this. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you are not conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. As I've said a couple of times before, at least twice in my sermons, there is a ticker in heaven somewhere or a book maintained by the Father. And one day, for those of us that were born outside of the Jewish people, as we come in to salvation, another name draws closer and closer and closer to the gathering of the church until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And if somebody is out there listening to this and is struggling with conviction, please go forward soon because you might be the one who's holding the rest of us up. Let's move on. Back to Daniel. Talking about the coming leader. Now, the coming leader whose people destroyed Jerusalem all those years before it. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. So he makes a contract, if you will, with Israel that the temple may be restored to active service, that sacrifices may continue. Basically, that Mosaic Judaism may commence once again. But halfway through that, three and a half years go by, and all of a sudden he goes full-blown megalomaniac and decides, now I should be worshipped. Your God is getting in my way. An abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple or in the Holy of Holies of the temple until the decreed destruction that is the the culmination of all things, that is the judgment on this coming world leader, the Antichrist, as some of us call it. The decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Desolator meaning this guy. So the coming leader, um, ruler, whatever you call him, Nimrod II, will make a covenant of peace with many. He will restore and allow worship within the temple of Jerusalem, supposedly after it's been rebuilt for the third time. Is that number a coincidence? I don't think so. 
the temple worship will end by law after a period of three and a half years. And he will place an idol, supposedly in his own image, in the Holy of Holies, which will make the temple desolate, devoid of the presence of God. Isaiah 28:15, the prophet writes, For you said, we have made a covenant with death, hell in some of your translations. And we have an arrangement with Sheol, that is the place of the dead, or the place of, of weeping, uh, gnashing of teeth, hell in other words. When the overwhelming catastrophe passes, a.k.a. the tribulation, it will not touch us because we have made, we, we, uh, made falsehood our refuge and have hidden behind treachery. Now, Isaiah could be talking about many events. And I'll talk about one in just a second. But basically what he's saying is, you're going to say that the whole world is burning. But because we have this piece of paper, we're going to get through it. If memory serves, a certain prime minister of Great Britain said the same thing after coming back from Czechoslovakia. He is not known in very good regard this day. To be honest with you, I can't even remember his name. It was the guy before Churchill. Anyway. Uh, Zechariah talks a little bit more about this same type of covenant. The Lord said to me, take the equipment of a foolish shepherd. I'm about to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are perishing. He will not seek the lost or heal the broken. He will not sustain the healthy, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Woe to this worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. Many a sword strike his, may a sword strike his arm and his right eye. Underline that in your copy of God's word or make note of it right now because that will return to us in the book of Revelation. As we study about the land beast and the sea beast, this will come back. May a sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm wither away and his right eye go completely blind. <clears throat> Wounded as unto death. This is Zechariah's illusion. Talking about the 70th week. Talking about the period of the day of the Lord, the coming tribulation. Three and a half years. The desecration of the temple of Jerusalem will be its trigger. That's what Jesus himself said. When you see it happen, YouTube, CNN, whatever, when you see it happen, get everybody in Jerusalem that hears this word out because God will pour out His vengeance at that point. Don't take any time, just run. Because once the desecration is set up, the outpouring of God's judgment will commence. And ground zero will be Jerusalem. It will be targeted wrath on this coming world leader, on the desolator. Now I want to talk a little bit about what was going on in the minds of the apostles during this, this time where Jesus is explaining the book of Daniel to them. Antiochus Epiphanes, I think that's how you pronounce it, or Antiochus, Antiochus IV of the Seleucid Empire was really interested in expanding Hellenistic culture and Hellenistic religion throughout the Eastern world. To do that, he, he made Torah reading illegal. He made the sacrifice to the one invisible God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob illegal. He erected a 
an idol of Zeus in the Holy of Holies and commanded that his own priests replace the Levitical priests and begin the, the, the required sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, that sacrifice was the sacrifice of pigs. You can imagine in a Jewish nation how that went over. This is what triggered the Maccabean rebellion, which is the reason behind the celebration of Hanukkah to this day. Once the, the Maccabeans, once they rose up and got the people of Israel behind them, the, Seleuc the Seleucids were overthrown. Excuse me, I must not have had enough coffee today. In 165 BC, and note this, when I'm talking about a covenant with death, the reason they were able to do it is because they had military and uh, political assistance from the Roman Republic. The Republic that would become an empire. The Republic who would send Pompey Magnus out in 63 BC to conquer the kingdom. History repeats. You'd think that they would remember. But anyway, the temple furnishings that had been used during the sacrifice of pigs to Zeus, all of that were taken out, all of that was destroyed. New everything was constructed, smelted, uh, furnished, and prepared. And when they rededicated the second temple again, this feast of, uh, of rededication, which is found referenced in John 10, is what we today know as the Feast of Hanukkah. When it was reconsecrated, it became known as the Festival of Lights. But when, Jesus, when, when the disciples had heard the abomination of desolation, what they thought, more than likely, was all those years of rabbinical teaching, this is the event that Daniel was talking about. And Jesus is telling them, no, you haven't seen anything yet. Something in its likeness, a prophetic echo, is going to happen again. And when it does, get everyone at that time that's in Jerusalem out because that's, your, that's how you will know that the three and a half period of God's judgment is about to begin. Um, talking about the people of the coming ruler. Now, again, Vespasian was the commander, the general in charge of the Roman-Israeli forces. But around 70 AD, he was recalled back to Rome because of a series of, of emperor deaths. Uh, one who was murdered, one who committed suicide after realizing that he was incompetent. A bunch of, of, of insane disorganization, not that we know anything about that in today's culture, let's go on. Uh, a bunch of disorganization was going on in the middle of the empire and Vespasian was called back to Rome to become emperor, leaving his son and his first lieutenant, Titus, in charge. Titus is ordered to pacify Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel as a whole from the Jewish rebellion. But along with this pacification, he ends up destroying the city of Jerusalem and its temple. And he triggers the, the, ex, the, the, the great Roman exile and the diaspora that we know of modern history of the Jews from the nation. 
So the people of the coming ruler are who? Are the Romans. Now here's the trick. When we think of the Roman Empire, we think of what historians would classify as the Western wing of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire during Constantine's rise actually spread, uh, stretched from the Iberian Peninsula, basically from Portugal to uh, the border of Scotland, down to Egypt, and all the way across to Asia Minor, what is to the Anatolia, what is today Turkey. The eastern leg of the Roman Empire actually separated, became its own distinct political entity. We call it the Byzantine Empire, and it lasted up until, it lasted a full 1,000 years past the fall of Rome. So when we say that the people of the coming ruler, that the coming ruler will descend from the Roman Empire, that's a lot of ground to cover. And it doesn't necessarily, see in our mindset when we think the Roman Empire, we think of the Western Empire, the Western half of it. We don't consider the fact that in the writing, in, in this writing, in the writing of the time of John, that there is a whole other several thousand miles of frontier yet to consider that goes into Russia. So there is a lot more racial coverage, national coverage, linguistic coverage, than simply uh, what we would consider from Italy over to Spain and as, as far north as England. But anyway, so, so the prophet Daniel identifies him as, as this political entity, as the place from which the coming ruler, who John in his letters, strangely enough, not in the book of Revelation, but in his letters, identifies as Antichrist, Antichristu. Which incidentally does not mean against Christ. It means in the place of Christ. We have a really bad habit of thinking anti as in the Ghostbuster symbol. We see an exterminator. You see a fly with a little X through it. Anti or in, a po in opposition of. Um, what it means more in the classical sense is in the place or the position of. In terms of Antichrist, the way that John first uses it in his letters, he's talking about someone who attempts to take upon themselves the authority of Christ politically and the place in our hearts of Christ spiritually. That's important to remember. These are Old Testament allusions to the Antichrist. And that's just a small colorful handful of over 30 he is called the seed of the serpent in Genesis, the shepherd of idols and idolatry in Zechariah, depending upon your translation, the little horn in, in Daniel's chapter 7 and 8, the coming ruler in Daniel chapter 9, and the willful king of Daniel 11. Let's get back into Matthew for just a second to take a look at some more of what Jesus is commenting on as his followers are asking him, when will these things come to pass? At that time, there will be a great distress, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. I want you to take note of that last bit. The distress that he's talking about will be so significant, the tribulation will be so significant, that even the flood of Noah does not compare to it. There are allusions in Zechariah that over 60% of the Jewish nation will perish in this thing. 
The good news is, ever will again. When this tribulation is completed, there will be no more tribulation. From the beginning of the world until now, never will again, unless, well, there never will be the significant. Don't forget about the part at the end of the millennium when that, that's getting ahead of ourselves. <clears throat> unless those days are cut short, no one would be saved. If God were to pour out his whole wrath, in other words, the planet might not still exist. But those days will be cut short for our sake. So let's take a look really quickly then at Daniel 12 and his final vision. Now again, just as one or two verses in Genesis 1 are expounded more in Genesis chapter 2. Daniel 12 is a little bit of a better explainer for the last two verses of Daniel 9, but it's still a bit of a preview for what we're going to read in the book of Revelation. Talking about the final vision. When you get there in your copy of God's Word, say amen. All right. At that time, Michael... The great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since the nations came into being until that time. Seems like I read something like that just a few seconds ago. But at that time, all of your people who are found written in the book will escape. Now, this is, not, this is an interesting idiom. Because we don't see it very often in the Old Testament. If you're part of the covenant people, you're part of the covenant people. But this is identified salvation as something else, something different, something that God himself must keep record of. Verse 2, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. For anyone that says that hell is not in the Old Testament, please take note of that verse. Eternal contempt not temporary contempt verse 3 those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever so there is a salvific efficacy here we're not just talking about people born into the kingdom of Israel. We're talking about something different. Something that involves people being led to salvation. Not that it's just part of their culture. But that a decision has to be made. A decision for God. This is different. Even from his day. Again, we're talking about the final judgment. The great white throne judgment. And the Bema seat judgment. Some will be judged and some will wake up in everlasting life. Others will be uh, cast out. Those who have insight. This is an Old Testament, and I know this is speculation on commentary part and on my part, but this is what I believe. Just as I believe that you cannot fully appreciate the whole counsel of the Word of God without the presence of the Holy Spirit, I believe that the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence is being prophesied here. Those who have insight will shine. The only way that we have the wisdom of God pronounced to us is not by the word of God alone, but also in tandem 
with the guiding light of the Holy Spirit, whose mission, we are told by the voice of Christ himself, is to teach us all things and remind us of all things that he himself, while he was on the earth, had taught us. Anyway, that's my belief on what he means by insight. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, this is another thing that Daniel has in parallel with John. There is something that both are being told not to distribute. Daniel did not end up sacrificing all of his writings, however, because we have the book of Daniel. <clears throat> John, the same thing. He was told to leave this, leave this vision out. We'll get to that a little bit later. So there's this parallel. There's something about the end times that if we knew it, would be dangerous for us. I don't know what that is. And I'm better off not wanting to find out. But something about this vision was meant to be kept under wraps. Many will roam about, knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked at two others. I want you to, t to underline that in your own copy of God's Word. Uh, two witnesses. How many people were there when Jesus... Uh, when Jesus uh, ascended to the hand of the Father? There were two. How many people are now witnessing the rise of, of Michael as well as the vision alongside the banks of the river with Daniel? Two. How many people will stand witness to the Messiah, the King that is Christ, at the third temple? Coincidence? I don't believe in them. One of them said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the water of the river, how long until the end of these wonderful things? Then I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river. He raised both of his hands towards heaven, swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Now, let me translate that for you into English. Um, because that's that's early Aramaic that has been lost apparently. At least that's according to the um, uh, the outline of biblical usage. Time singular meaning one. Times plural in this case dual meaning two. Half a time meaning one half. So one plus two plus a half, three and a half. In this case, supposedly three and a half years. So let's reread that. He raised both of his hands toward heaven and swore by him who lives eternally that it would be for three and a half years. When the power of the holy people is shattered, all these things will be completed. Three and a half years. But I heard, but I didn't understand. And this is Daniel we're talking about here. This is one of the wisest men on earth. A man gifted with, with, with God's insight from his infancy. I heard but didn't understand. If this thing was hard for him, yeah, it is hard for the rest of us. That's why we need to study it. My Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? He said, go on your way, Daniel. For the words are secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined. 
but the wicked will act wickedly. This is pretty much the same thing that Jesus says. You will, you will, the uh, nation will rise against nation. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be pestilence, plague. People will starve. These things will happen, but it's not the end. Many will be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked will still act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand. This is where I also think of the Holy Spirit when we're talking about insight. The wicked will not understand. The regenerate won't get it. Only those who are purified by Christ and then sealed with the Holy Spirit will be able to understand those things. Those who have insight will understand. From the time of the daily that the time of the daily sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up, it will be one thousand two hundred ninety days again, three hundred and three hundred and sixty day calendar, which renders three and a half years. Happy is the one who waits and reaches one thousand three hundred and thirty five days, who exceeds that last three and a half years. As for you, go on your way to the end. You will rest, and you will stand to receive your allotted inheritance at the end of these days. Imagine how confused and yet how comforting it would be for the prophet to hear these words. Your time is almost done, but you are beloved by God. You will receive your inheritance but not just yet. So that brings the, the prep work, if you will, to an end. I'm debating on whether or whether or not to have a, a kind of a, another side session for a couple of sessions on the Antichrist, on the, the rest of some of the biblical aspects of him specifically. Um, but... We've gone through, in these last few sessions, we've talked about uh, Christ the kinsman redeemer, as in Ruth, and we're going to talk about him more because the next thing that we're going to get, we're going to jump back into Revelation chapter 6 in the next session. We've, talked, we've spent three sessions talking about the rapture throughout the rest of the Bible and in the works of the early church fathers. And we've spent two sessions in this part of the book of Daniel. Anything, questions, comments, or uh, anything along those lines before we close our session? If not, for next time. I've already asked you once before to read over Revelation 6. That's where our target is going to be in next Wednesday's study. So I'm not going to force you to do that unless you have time and you just want to, because I know you've read it before. But if you want to go back in like an audio Bible and just have it fresh in your mind, please do so. But the real prep work I want you to take a look at is in Jeremiah chapter 30, his prophecy there, and in the two chapters, Zechariah 12 and 14, um, look for echoes of both Daniel chapter 9 and the book of Revelation that we've started into. I want you to, to really pay attention to the phrase, and this might be different in your translations, depending. Watch out for the phrase, Jacob's troubles. Keep an eye out for that.
What does the scroll represent? We've talked about that once before, so I'm hoping that after you do this reading, you'll gain better insight. Please remember to journal. At least, if you can't do it once a day, that's fine. Do it during your readings. But keep track of that, because if you do your Bible in a year, or if you do topical studies like this, that is a precious gift to your future self and to your children that you can leave behind. And you can go back to and see just how far you've grown spiritually. Please get a hold of your groups. During the summer, I know it's hard because everybody is out and about. There's a section of Myrtle Beach. I'm sure that they've renamed New West Virginia. But despite that, reach out to your groups and talk to them. Make sure that you're sharing your insights. And we will see each other again, at least in this type of setting, next Wednesday at 7 o'clock. God willing, if you're available, please join us in the sanctuary. And if all else fails, please, when you see this video, like it, comment on it, share it in whatever social media you happen to use because that helps us both minister to others and evangelize through the Word of God. And, and let me take a moment before we conclude to mention one thing. There's, there's a question that often comes up as to, well, if you're a pre-trib person, why do you bother to study the rest of the book of Revelation in the first place? I'll give you two answers, and I'll, I'll discuss that more in depth in the future sessions. But there are two, two issues that I can give you off the top of the bat. The first one is, uh, you are commanded to. Revelation chapter 1, blessed is he who reads and who, who listens to the words of this prophecy. You're claiming a blessing of God, number one. Number two is that if all else fails, this should, seeing what those who are not, whose names are not written in that book, hearing about what they will go through, should help to inspire us to make sure that they have the opportunity to come to Christ. Hell is real. Hell was a reality as we just read in the Old Testament. John 3, the part that we never read, because for some odd reason we stop at 17, tells us that whoever denies Christ stands condemned already. As a Christian, it is your job, all of you, to proclaim the gospel with boldness. Because this is a fate, I can assure you, you do not want your neighbors and your family members to endure. Part of the reason that I think that we are given the rest of this book post-rapture, if you will, is to impassion and embolden us to making Christ known. And all God's people said, Amen. Heavenly Father, as we conclude this session, we again ask you to ignite a fire within our hearts to want to see a third great awakening within our land, to once more 
see people come to you in droves that you will one more time pour your grace, your pity, and your mercy out upon our people and our land. Lord, use us to this purpose. Please continue to teach. Please continue to strengthen. Please continue to embolden us to be messengers of your word, to always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within us, the hope that we now study, the hope that we cling to in you as not only the author but the perfecter of our faith. As we dismiss this place and as the videos end, may we now enter with that boldness and that strength and that assurance. May we enter our mission field more fully furnished in what would make you, what would bring glory to your name and your word of mercy to those who desperately need it. Please, Grant us one last revival. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.